Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Well, we're in the investment business. And Mary, we wouldn't normally think of ourselves as being in the well-being business, would we? No. But there's an increasing acknowledgement, I think, that financial well-being is really a big contributor to overall wellness. And perhaps actually it's sort of the last taboo, if you like, in terms of discussions over, over well-being. So delighted to say that we're joined today by Heidi Allen, Head of Financial Wellbeing at LCP. Heidi, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks for joining, Heidi. Can you, before we kick off, go ahead and tell the listeners a bit about your role and what it means at LCP? Yeah, of course. A bit of background for me, first of all. I've been in financial services for about 30 years now. That's quite a scary realisation. But I started in pension, which evolved into wider employee benefits. And then the last 10 years or so, I've been more heavily focused on employee financial wellbeing. And my role at LCP here is to take the great work that we're doing with clients already on an ongoing basis and just really help them understand the issues and the challenges facing their workforce and how that impacts their decision making, their engagement and their productivity in the workplace when they're worried about all things money. That's fascinating. I'm really looking forward to getting into that conversation in just a second. But just before we get into that, Heidi, why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your LinkedIn profile or on your CV? I can think of a few random things, but if I picked probably the most memorable one for me, that would have to be that I've dug a snow hole in the Arctic Circle and slept in it overnight. Wow. (laughs) That is not one we've heard before. (laughs) Was that part of a bigger trip? That was a volunteer project for the Prince's Trust a few years ago. It was just the most life-changing, most amazing experience. You looked around and you literally felt like you were on top of the world. It was amazing. Did you have a good night's sleep? Not particularly. Reindeer skins are quite warm and comfortable, but yeah, not the best night's sleep, I'll have to admit to. Wow. I don't know quite where to go from there, but I guess uh, (laughs) diving in, I guess, right at the deep end, Heidi. So... Why is financial well-being so important to overall wellness? And I guess what could be the detrimental impact of bad financial well-being? So we've done a lot across the workplace over the last few years, focusing really heavily on physical well-being and in more recent years, focusing on mental well-being. But financial well-being is sort of the last taboo, as it were. You mentioned it earlier, Dan. But there's such a correlation. All three of those, whether we like it or not, are intrinsically linked. And if we're worried about something physically or mentally or financially, it has an impact on the rest of us. So, for example, if we've got money worries, it's going to keep us awake at night and that's going to impact us physically. And if we're lacking a bit of confidence because we're making bad behaviour choices or circumstances have dictated that actually our financial situation is not where we want it to be, then actually that really does impact us mentally from a confidence perspective as well. So they are just so intrinsically linked with each other. And what we're talking about here really, I suppose, Heidi, is our personal relationship with money, isn't it? Which is quite a complicated thing for a lot of us, for all of us really, isn't it? It is. And it's something that actually 
we find really difficult to talk about. A lot of times, if people say, let's have a conversation about money, for example, that doesn't necessarily mean we talk about how much our house is worth and how much we earn or how much our bills are. It can be as simple as just having a really simple conversation with your friends who invite you to go out, for example. And it's about saying, actually, I've got my car service and MOT coming up this month, so money's a little bit tight. Do you mind if we have dinner around ours or something like that? It doesn't necessarily have to be these big, scary, dangerous conversations that people are afraid of. And I guess it's having the confidence to say, do you mind if we do something different, which I think is a bit of a taboo at the moment, isn't it? I've got a friend who stopped coming to dinner with a few of us for a while, stopped coming and sort of eventually sent a message and was like, you know, is everything okay? And she sort of said, well, I can't really afford to join you for dinner. So I've just not been coming. And actually, it was such a shame because she didn't feel comfortable enough to say that. And so we didn't see her for a while. And all of us would have been very happy to take it in turns hosting dinner. And I guess it's getting over that taboo and starting to solve the problem. And that's exactly right. And what your friend may well have experienced in that is obviously the stigma around saying, I'm not financially comfortable at the moment and I need to make some changes. But actually, if he or she had opened up, then there could have been other people in your friendship group that actually might have been feeling the same and might not have had the confidence to say that they were in that self-same situation. Or they could be sat there thinking, oh, I'm so pleased that you said that I'm in the same situation. So it's about being open and honest and having those conversations and for people to be able to support when people do need help and support, because we all have it at various stages throughout our life. And that's okay. And I suppose we're talking here about, there's a big role here about social pressure, social influences, and the sort of narratives that get pushed upon us by society from quite a young age, I suppose, right? I mean, do you see those sort of things influencing people? Absolutely, I do. And I think for all of us, we all learn our behaviours from our parents and from those who bring us up. And I think if you're in a situation where maybe your parents had had difficult situations with money or maybe they'd made some bad choices. I know personally, my parents made some bad choices when they were younger. And I've got a brother who's eight years older than me. And they felt such stigma around the choices that they'd made that they didn't have a conversation with my brother and he ended up making similar choices when he started to become financially independent and the guilt and the pressure that they felt around not sort of bringing up his knowledge and not talking about it so that he didn't do the same things was really quite detrimental to them. So much so when I came along eight years later, I'm sat down and I'm told, you don't do this, you don't do this, you make sure you've got this in place, you make sure you're protected and all of these different things. So my relationship with money and the experiences that I had growing up are very different to my brother because of that kind of stigma. And I think we all play a part regardless of whether you're an organisation whether you're a parent, whether you're a son or a daughter, whether you're a brother, a sister or a friend, we all play a part in helping to make sure that everyone has a good relationship with money and that we're all open to be able to talk about things that are troubling us, but also to be able to share experiences when we make choices that are good choices so that people can learn from mistakes, but also learn from good behaviours at the same time. Yeah, it's a great point, isn't it? Do you think some of the sort of simplistic narratives such as money can't buy happiness sort of thing do you think some of those simplistic ideas actually get in the way of a slightly deeper exploration of of the effect of financial well-being on us 
I do. And I really like that saying, money can't buy happiness. And there's a lot of truth behind that. But actually, when you're thinking about money management and you're thinking about where your money goes, actually, money can buy you happiness if you use it to do the things that make you happy. So when we talk about money can't buy you happiness, we're not talking about the latest gadget or a top of the range vehicle or a house that you can't afford or anything like that or buying friendships. We're talking about having a conversation with yourself as well to say, actually, what is it that I want my money to do for me? Another great example. So my daughter's 11. And again, this kind of comes into tips, which I know we'll come on to a little bit later, but it's quite a good opportunity now. When we were growing up, we didn't have contactless. We didn't have mobiles with tap to pay technology or anything like that. We have money in our pockets. We earned pocket money. We got given our pound or our 50p or whatever, and we saved our money. So when we went to the shops and we had, say, five pound in our pocket, we had to immediately do a wants versus needs exercise subconsciously when we're in the toy shop to decide there may be two things on the shelf, but you physically only had enough money to buy one of them. So which one are you going to get the greatest satisfaction from? I try and do that with my daughter now, and it's surprising how many times she'll say to me, oh, mummy, I've got £10 or £20 or whatever. And she'll see two things and she'll say, mummy, can you lend me the money for that one? Or if I buy this, can you buy that? And call me harsh, but I say no. But what I do say is, if you want to buy that other thing, then why don't you leave them both there now? We'll do some things during the week. If you make your bed, you put your clothes away, I'll give you some extra pocket money and I'll bring you back next week. And if the thing that you wanted, you still want a strongly then go for it, buy it, treat yourself, you've earned the money. But nine times out of 10, we go back to the shop and the thing that she really wanted last week is not the same thing she wants now. And I think all of us sort of with children and with younger brothers and sisters, for example, we're losing some of those inherent behaviours and some of those instinctive sort of processes that we go through when it comes to managing and spending our money. And I think that's a real shame. And I think that's something that we can all maybe take a bit of responsibility to try and bring back to the here and now. In that story, there's a few different themes in a way, because there's obviously the idea that an 11-year-old might change their mind over the course of a week and actually earning the money before you spend it is something my dad was very strong about when we were younger. But also, I guess the idea of contactless, which has a lot of merits, but contactless versus having five one-pound coins in your pocket. Do you think that there is a difference in how people think about money, not just young people, but throughout because of the sort of cashless system that we find ourselves quite often in? I totally 100% agree, yes, without question I do. I think when you've got physical cold hard cash in your pocket, it's a very different experience when you go shopping to where you've got contactless, where actually money isn't really there and you don't necessarily think about the impact of those decisions. And it's very easy to go into a shop, especially if you've got a debit card and maybe there's overdraft or even credit cards. A very, very different relationship when it's your physical money that you're taking out and you're spending versus spending money that ultimately isn't there, especially with a credit card, for example. If there's two things that you want for, say, £20, you literally would think nothing of saying, well, I want them both. I'll have them both. Tap, tap. Thank you very much. And then you go home and you think about the consequences afterwards. 
and I'm sure you guys are the same. I've got stuff in my wardrobe, for example, that's still got tags on. I've got things in my kitchen that I've bought previously that I thought was a fantastic idea. And they've been maybe used once or twice and they're never used again. Have you guys got anything like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm sure I've bought stuff where I'm sure if I'd had to hand over the actual physical cash, that would have made me think, well, hang on a second, that's a lot of money. But when you're buying it online or tap tap, you're right. It's just like it's just thin air, isn't it? So this is a real complicating factor, isn't it? Because we're saying that we already have a complicated enough relationship with money. And now we're also turning into this abstract thing that no longer has this physical presence that we can sort of see and touch. And that's recipe for real problems, isn't it? It is. But I think... And don't get me wrong, I think contactless is great. And I think for a lot of people, the contactless society that we found ourselves in exponentially quicker than we ever thought we would, given all of the events of 2020 so far, and who knows what the rest of 2020 and beyond is going to look like. But I do think there is a place for it. And I do like to be balanced whenever we're talking about anything to do with finances. And yes, whilst the contactless versus physical cash dilemma is a challenge for a lot of people. I actually do think that contactless is a really, really good invention for a number of people as well. And again, I think the best way to bring some of these things to life is real life examples. And and I'll share another. Both of my parents are disabled. My mum has got really bad arthritis. So my mum finds it really difficult to handle the small coins and also the new slippery notes, the fives, tens and 20 pound notes. So my mum got into a situation where she stopped going to the shop. So she's got a little motability scooter. She would go out with my dad on his. But she just started to become more and more withdrawn and more reluctant to not want to go out. So we sat her down and had a conversation. And long story short, it was the vulnerability that she felt having to get somebody to go into her bag, get her purse out, go into her purse and get money out to physically pay for something in a shop. She found that demoralizing, demeaning, and made her feel really, really vulnerable. So I'm not sure if you've ever heard of, it's a thing called Ping It. So it was something that Barclay started when the British Summertime Festivals started in Hyde Park quite a few years ago, where they wanted to make it cashless. And it's a series of things. You don't have to be a Barclays customer to use them. And you can buy or you can get hold of either a card or a fob or like a necklace or a bracelet that you can wear a bit like a Fitbit fitness strap. And it works in exactly the same way as contactless. You cannot go overdrawn. So money that you put on there, you can control via an app so you can see all of your spending. You don't actually physically need to take a purse or a wallet or money with you, but you can only spend what you put on it. So it's great if you're budgeting or maybe you're in a situation where you need to restrict what you're spending on a weekly basis. It's a really great way of doing it. So we got one for my mum and my dad. So when they went shopping, all it meant was my mum had to tap her wrist against the contactless, which she's absolutely fine to do. And it revolutionized her attitude to going out. She no longer needs to carry a purse. She doesn't need to carry money. Everything that's on there is safe, it's controlled, and it's kind of given her her independence back. So I think there's lots of things like that that can help in those sort of circumstances. My daughter's got one now as well. And I just think if you've got sort of teenagers or 
people in the household who, or even if you're working in a major city, when we're allowed to travel and, and go back to those kind of circumstances, it's actually a really great way of feeling safe when you're moving around and you're sort of paying for travel and paying for things as you're moving throughout the city as well. It's just a really good idea. Yeah, that's a great example of how sort of money can be access to money can be empowering and can be limiting if you don't have it. But that's, a, I suppose, a positive innovation that's allowed, that's promoted more well-being and independence in that area. One question I had on my mind, Heidi, sometimes I find that some of the communications and material I see around financial wellness, whether it's pitched as financial education or the tone of it, whether it's sort of slightly chiding people for their spending or you know that classic thing of like if you didn't buy a coffee each day and you invested it you'd have this much after 20 years sort of thing do you sometimes feel the tone of that stuff gets things a bit wrong and can come off as a bit patronizing yes i do and i'm going to be slightly controversial here but i think that's the very nature of where we work but i do personally find the term financial education a bit demeaning if i'm honest i think knowledge building and sort of building those foundations, I think, is a far more positive way. And even things like if you're running sessions in the workplace or via an online virtual event, if you call something money management or coping with debt or something of that nature, actually, you're already turning people off of attending that session because of the stigmas that we spoke about earlier. Whereas if you phrase it in a more positive and a more supportive kind of way, for example, instead of managing money or managing your debt, as an example, if we call something top tips for making your money go further, that's a far more positive session. And you're bound, and again, from experience, we've tried both ways. You get a far greater attendance and a far greater engagement with that positively worded communication. So yeah, wholeheartedly agree with that. So Heidi, you've mentioned a couple of times kind of the relationship between sort of financial well-being and the workplace. What role do you think employers have in improving financial well-being, I guess, across the nation? I think for me, there is a fine line between how far does an organisation go when it comes to helping and supporting people. We don't want to find ourselves in a situation or in an environment whereby we feel like the decisions are taken away from us or where we feel like people are looking down on us for whatever reason. But I think the greatest successful strategies that I've seen with organisations I've worked with over the years have been those that have been collaborative, those that have been open and those that have provided flexibility of choice. So not everybody is going to have a need for the same benefits at the same point in time. But actually providing people with the flexibility to make the choice and the information to make a smart, well-informed choice about what they need is where the success comes in. So financial well-being strategies don't need to be dictator-driven and they don't need to be, how to phrase it without sounding a bit mean, but they don't need to be sort of hierarchical that say you should have this and at this level you need this particular thing because actually our own beliefs, our own values, our own experiences growing up, things that we've lived through as well as our attitudes and our beliefs as to how we manage money will dictate what things we see as important to us and what you, Mary, see as important to you will depend on your circumstances. The same with you, Dan, what you feel is important to you at your stage in life is different to what I would feel. So I think that's a good positive. 
Heidi, in your experience, are people open to that sort of financial well-being conversation with their employer, given how we've talked about how personal this relationship with money is? In some ways, as we said, it's so personal, it's even hard to talk about it with our closest family, which is a bit of an issue. Do people struggle with that coming from their employer or are people open to it, do, do you think? I think it depends greatly on how it's positioned and I think it depends greatly on what's on offer. So I think, again, if you've got organisations that are being quite negative about money and are being quite negative about what's available, people aren't going to have that conversation. And again, some of the most successful strategies have come from sharing experiences. So whereby when you're going through a negative situation, be that physically, mentally or financially, most of the time you're not in a position to be able to necessarily talk about what's going on or open up about what you're doing. But actually, when you've come out the other side, that's the opportunity for you to sort of say, this is my story. This is what's happened to me. This is how I felt. This is what I learned from it. This is what I did to get out of it. And this is where I am now. Sharing those experiences and those stories across an organization. And again, you don't have to go into the nth degree of detail. I think they've been so hugely successful that I think anything that we can do that brings things to life and allows people to think, actually, I'm not on my own. I haven't made a bad choice and I'm not the only one that's ever done this. But also sometimes it's not behavior. Sometimes it's circumstances outside of our control that have led us to be where we are. Relationship breakdown, an accident, an illness, a change in job circumstance, for example. And again, never before have we found ourselves in a situation where the whole world is experiencing something as major as we're all experiencing now. So if we can learn anything from the crisis and the pandemic that we're going through currently, it's to be able to say, actually, something's happened, something's changed. This is where I am. This is what I'm going to do to get out of it and share those experiences and help everyone around you rather than burying your head in the sand thinking it will go away and actually then ending up in a really difficult situation at some point in the future. Prevention is so much better than cure. That's a really interesting point, actually, isn't it? The fact that at the moment, because there are the expectation is there are so many people concerned about their jobs, concerned about finances because of COVID, that actually that makes it more acceptable to talk about, which actually has a potentially positive long-term outcome, even though currently it's a worry for lots of people. Yeah, exactly. And I was going to pick up on that. And I guess sometimes having an external thing that you can sort of quote unquote blame actually makes it a bit easier because if you don't have anything else you can point the finger at, then the finger's pointing at you, isn't it? Which is just going to make it so much harder to talk about. Whereas if it can be attributed to something else, then I presume that makes the conversation a bit easier because it just sort of depersonalizes it, maybe diffuses some of the emotion out of the conversation. Absolutely. And knowing that you're not on your own, knowing that everybody across the country, across the globe has been affected. We have all had our money impacted, be that positively or negatively. Every single one of us has been impacted, regardless of to what degree. So take this as a really great opportunity to say, okay, this is my opportunity to take stock. If you've got some bad behaviours or you've made some bad decisions in the past, This is your opportunity to draw a line underneath it, get help and support that you need to move yourself forward and actually use this as the catalyst for starting day one again to say, yes, I've made bad choices before. I know I've done that. I'm not going to do that again. I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to move myself forward. 
because we're never, ever going to get an opportunity like this again. You'll notice I'm very glass half full. I always try and see the positive. And I think this could really be a positive to come out of this really bad situation that a lot of people have found themselves in if we can use it to springboard ourselves forward. So Heidi, you've been doing a lot of work in the last year, both collecting data and and also working with companies to improve various financial wellbeing strategies. Can you give us a feel for kind of the state of play at the moment and perhaps the impact of COVID and then also maybe move into some of the tips that you haven't yet shared with us on how to improve financial wellbeing? Absolutely. So yeah, we were really fortunate enough to be able to do a really large scale piece of research right before the pandemic hit in terms of how people feel about their current financial situation. And we were also fortunate enough to be able to do some research during the pandemic to see what sort of impact it was having. One of the main things to come out of it was around the lack of resilience that people have. So the lack of savings, the lack of access to a buffer to be able to help them tide themselves over should something happen or something change or a vehicle breakdown or something like that. And I think one of the biggest things that we've learned as an organisation, which we can also take forward with our clients, is, is actually to take a moment, take a step back and just have a look at the data ask people how they're feeling and actually use those insights to be able to decide, okay, what am I going to do to move forward as an organisation, as an employer body to help support my people? Because if you don't understand where the issues and the challenges are, you could be spending money doing things that actually aren't going to give you the greatest reward or aren't going to reap you the best engagement or get you the best return for your investment going forward. So I do think that's a really important point to get across. It doesn't have to be a massive big exercise. And if you don't know, if you don't have the data, it's okay to ask people how they're feeling. Again, we're at a time when asking people how they feel and what's worrying them and concerning them has never been more mainstream than it is now. Yeah. What are some of the tips and actionable insights you're getting out of some of these analytics for some of the companies you work with? So what's really interesting is around the flexibility to support that resilience. So providing the opportunity for people to save. And we know that obviously long-term savings is part of every employee benefits strategy within every workplace, but actually have organisations given much thought to the shorter term and the more medium term savings options. That's a really interesting conversation to have and kind of thinking about benefits and and obviously sort of bringing it back to the audience and investing and pensions there's a, a common misconception that people don't value pensions and that especially in the younger age groups when actually the research shows that yes as people get older the value people place on pension undoubtedly becomes far more significant the older they get But actually, the perception that youngsters don't value pension is actually not reflected in the research. And actually, what we see is that even the youngsters value pension, in some instances, as much or in the same league as flexible working and those types of things that you would typically associate as being more valued by youngsters. And then obviously, that's more of an upward curve as we move through career. So, yeah, in terms of communication, it's a very interesting thing to think about. I mean, that was one of the things that really stuck out to me as being super interesting from that survey. And I think the survey was something like 10,000 people, wasn't it? So a, a real huge piece of research. But just that analysis of which benefits were seen to be the most valuable at different ages, that was thought was brilliant. We'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah, perfect. 
Heidi, in that analysis, was there any sort of, if you could pick one single stat that surprised you in the data? Oh, there's a few that spring to mind. Probably the one that shocked me the most was 48% of under 34s said that financial pressure affected their intake and consumption of alcohol, nicotine and substances just because it was so shocking and such a high percentage of youngsters that really stands out to me and really stood out. So Heidi, just as we wrap up, what would be the one thing that you want listeners to take away from this episode? The biggest thing really is about it's okay to talk about money. And just because you find yourself in a difficult situation, it doesn't necessarily mean that you've got poor or negative behaviours. Sometimes it can be circumstances outside of our control that lead us to be in a difficult situation. So it's okay to put your hand up and say, I need some help. So Heidi, one question we love asking people, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about investing? So I think the most underappreciated thing from my perspective is it actually doesn't have to be complicated and investing isn't just for those that are well off. We can all benefit from short-term, medium-term and long-term thinking. Products don't have to be complicated and confusing and actually starting small can actually reap you big rewards in the longer term. Fantastic answer. I'm really going to take that away, Heidi. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a really, really good discussion. Thanks, Heidi. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, guys. That's all we've got time for this week on Investment Uncut. Please join us again next week for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.